This is a podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we have a legal development that should be of interest to all of our listeners. It is a jury verdict that was handed down last Friday in Jackson County against the Blue Springs School District in a claim made by a transgender student. Although the case has a complicated procedural history that we'll go into a little bit, it's been bubbling around for some time now. And the case was finally tried to a jury last week, and it ended with a very bad result for a school district. So at issue in the case is whether or not it is sex or gender discrimination for a school to exclude a student from restroom or locker room usage based upon their gender, the gender with which the student identifies. As we will discuss, one of the things that makes this case a little bit different than many of our cases is that this particular student had legally changed his name in 2010 and amended his birth certificate to reflect his new name and gender in 2014. Following this change, even though the student was legally a male, the district failed to let him use the male restroom or locker room. And that was, as I understand it, very much at the center of of this particular case. So today, we wanted to take the time to break this down a little bit, unpack some of the issues, and talk a little bit about what it means for Missouri schools going forward. On our team for today's discussion, we have my partners, Emily Omohundro and Drew Marriott. Good to see each of you. You guys ready to discuss you ready to discuss this one? Yes. All right. Um, well, thanks for both of you to take a little bit of time to talk through this one. I know people have probably have seen the headlines by now. I know we were alerted to this issue last Friday, shortly after the uh, verdict. But um, I'm going to ask Drew to kick us off today, if you don't mind, and just give us a little bit of background on this case and what transpired. Yeah, and so this is one that, as you mentioned, Dwayne, kind of procedurally complex, but has been around, it feels like, for a really long time. So this this all dates back to actions that were uh, in around 2013, 2014. And so, I mean, by calculation, going through based on, you know, when this claim was brought in the age of RMA at the time, the student would have graduated around the 2017, 2018 school year. So we're still working through and just now reaching a conclusion at trial, which may not be the conclusion of the case just last week. And so, you know, one of the things that I feel like we've kind of, I've kind of lost through, through all of the discussions and the appeals and the, uh, the writs for prohibition and going up to the Supreme court and back down again, were just the facts of the case. And this was one of those cases where a student brought a public accommodation discrimination case under the Missouri human rights act. And RMA is a female to male transgender uh, who was born female, but transitioned to male at while a fourth grader in 2009. Like you said, the student's name was legally changed. Birth certificate was amended by the court. All of the student records indicated uh, that RMA was male. And around eighth grade, they expressed an interest in being able to use the male bathrooms and male locker rooms um, because at that time, RMA was using unisex single-use facilities for, for changing or using the restroom. And so those requests were rejected, rejected 
again by the district and then again when the, the student entered into freshman year at the freshman center made those requests again and those requests were rejected as well and so the plaintiff in this case alleged that the district's reason for denying plaintiff access to those facilities was because the district believed the plaintiff was transgendered and had female genitalia and that they don't place those requirements on other students that are legally male and, and aren't doing checks to see if those other students have male anatomy. And so that's a that, that's treating the student differently to, to classify where the student can use those facilities. And so the arguments were that this student was singled out because of that. This student had participated in sports, uh, participated in, in boys PE, and in all of those instances had to change separately from the rest of the team or the rest of the class. And for all of those reasons, the student said that they were made to feel inferior that they were subjected to different requirements than other students, embarrassed and singled out, and given less adequate facilities by which to receive an education and participate. And so that's, factually, that's, that's I mean, the, the crux of the case is that this was purely a public accommodation case and access to facilities for a transgender student. Okay. So, you know, when I first saw the the amount of the verdict with the punitive damages, I thought, okay, well, there must be some harassment involved. This must be some pernicious, there must be some pernicious facts that kind of demonstrate some really egregious conduct by other students or perhaps, but that really doesn't seem like that was at the heart of this particular case. Is that fair? That, that's fair. I mean, this is not a case where bullying was alleged or that, you know, there were, there were other issues. It was purely, purely access to, to similar or same facilities in that in that public accommodation claim so i mean this this case and one of the things that when we talk through the procedure in the supreme court case that sent it back down to the trial court i mean it goes through this was one count of sex discrimination under the missouri human rights act and that was it and i i don't think we've said the numbers yet do you do you want me to go ahead and say what that judgment was why don't you go ahead and, and explain what the jury came up with on this one and and the was it a unanimous jury it was Okay, so unanimously they decided uh, a certain amount in in actual damages or compensatory damages, but most of it was in punitives, right? That's correct. So it was one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in compensatory damages, and then the, and then the scary thing for a school district is that it was four million dollars in punitive damages. So we're looking at uh, over four million dollars awarded to the student for for what the jury deemed to be sex discrimination. So let me back up a second, Drew, and and you mentioned that it is a Human Rights Act claim, and it's based on the idea that it's this is gender discrimination or sex discrimination here. Um, and that, so how does it work under the Missouri Human Rights Act? Some of our listeners probably need to, to think about this a little bit. The jury makes the decision about the verdict on the actual and punitive damages, and then the parties come back and the prevailing party can ask for its attorney's fees. Is that correct? Correct. And so when we talk about that, when we talk about that 4.1 plus million dollars that's awarded, what's not been decided yet is the reasonable attorney's fees that are granted under the Missouri Human Rights Act. And so in this instance, when we're talking about a case that's involved two separate cases, one filed in 2014, one filed in 2015. This was this was the continuation and the conclusion of the 2015 one. The fact that both of those cases have gone up to the Supreme Court and back down and now gone through trial 
there's likely going to be a hefty request for attorney's fees by a plaintiff in this case. And so that's going to be money on top of this. And that's something that the jury, when they make these decisions, they don't know. I mean, that's not something they're informed of. They're not going to know that if they find in favor of plaintiff on these cases, that there's going to be a reasonable word of attorney's fees that the judge is going to decide after that. You want to talk a little bit about uh, you know, how this works from here? I mean, we do have a jury verdict, and it's a sizable one, but uh, it's not necessarily the end of the case, right? Not necessarily. Uh, we don't have an indication as to where it's going to go next. Uh, some of the legal issues, and so if we, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit, you know, the appeal. So this case was was dismissed. Uh, the defendants in this case, so the school district filed a motion to dismiss in 2015. The court dismissed it. Court of Appeals for the Western District affirmed that that went up to the Supreme Court. And if you remember at this time, we're having discussions because there's that other competing case related to the the writ, uh, uh, the mandamus petition that was filed in a competing case. But we had all these discussions about sex stereotyping and sex discrimination and what 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 is how is this being processed under the Missouri Human Rights Act? The Court of Appeals and the trial court in this case said the Missouri Human Rights Act does not talk about gender identity or sexual orientation, and therefore those aren't protected classes. And that's why the case was dismissed um, in part. And there was another part about whether school districts are persons as identified under the under the Missouri Human Rights Act. So those legal issues have all been decided by the highest court in the state of Missouri. So we're not going to have an appeal on those legal issues from this trial, but it's not to say that there weren't, you know, issues, evidentiary issues or procedural issues at the trial court that the defendants may decide to appeal in this case and 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 take this case up on appeal. So there'll be, you know, generally it's 30 days for filing post-trial motions before the final uh, judgment's final, a notice of appeals filed at that point too, or after those post-trial motions are decided. And then the matter could be appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Western District. So what does this all mean in terms of uh, conclusions that our clients can draw from this particular decision? You know, is the dust settled on the idea that it can be gender discrimination, sex discrimination to exclude uh, a student uh, from the restroom or locker room based on the, their gender identification? I mean, I, I think that, I think that that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, if you look at judge Wilson's opinion, um, in the Supreme court case and, and what I want, what I think is important here and, and what we have to think through and what we think through as litigators, but just to kind of describe the process, when you take a case to trial, the, the jury is going to receive instructions. The, the judge is going to tell them, here is what, here is the, the questions you have to answer. And if you answer these questions in favor of plaintiff, then they win, right? And then it's just a question of what the damages are. And in looking at Judge Wilson's, um, the, the majority opinion by Judge Wilson, so this was, this was an opinion that was five to two. So there were two dissenting Supreme Court judges. It's, it's a case that's got a little bit of everything, but you know, a dissenting opinion filed by Judge Fisher, joined by Judge Powell, and then the five, um, five remaining judges, the majority, joined in Judge Wilson's opinion. But the majority in that said, this is what the jury instruction will be. This will be the instruction that the court gives to the jury. Okay, let me stop you there, Drew. Yeah. I kind of want to pull this back and explain what you're talking about to our listeners, because 
what you're referring to is when this case went up on appeal and there were a lot uh, a lot of issues surrounding whether these types of claims could be made whether or not under the Missouri Human Rights Act it, gender identification was a protected classification and that sort of thing you're talking about the decision from the Missouri Supreme Court that laid out that it could be a gender discrimination right and then explained what it should look like when you're instructing a jury on how to decide whether in fact in a particular case it has been gender discrimination was that kind of a fair sum up that's a fair sum up that's that, that's <laughs> helpful so what i will say is the supreme court said yes this is sex discrimination right and they addressed some of those um so this doesn't have to say you know biological sex the missouri human rights act doesn't have to go into that detail Sex is sex, and since this is based on sex, whether the student was treated as a male or treated differently from other males, then that's sex discrimination and, and basically put that issue to, to, to rest. So, and, and actually, which is kind of a little bit unusual, I think, but the Supreme Court has said, okay, here's what the law is as you're going to provide to the jury what the law states, and, it, and this is the verdict that they came up with based on that instruction or something very close to that, right? Correct. I mean, the instruction that Judge Wilson laid out was first, defendant school district and school board denied plaintiff full and equal use and enjoyment of the male's restroom, locker room facilities at defendant school. And second, plaintiff's male sex was a contributing factor in such denial. So this was under the old standard since it was an older case, but it would be, there would be different language there now, but it would still be the same analysis in some ways. And third is a direct result of such conduct plaintiff sustained damage. And so those were the instructions that were given to the jury in this case. And they looked at in, and through their conclusion, you know, unanimously, they came back and said, the student was denied full and equal use and enjoyment of the facilities and was denied those at least in part because of their student as, or their, their sex as male. So, and I, what I'm getting to here is that I think it's probably in this case, even though it's a trial court decision, there's a reasonable likelihood, unless there's some procedural defect or evidentiary issue that you mentioned, this is probably going to hold on appeal. Is that fair? I mean, I think it's fair because the the legal issues and the legal issues that we've been focused on for the last several years have been decided by the Missouri Supreme Court, and that's that that's what sent it back down. So I think I think that is fair, unless there's some kind of technicality or some deficiency at trial, issues with jurors, issues with evidence coming in. The legal issues I think are settled. Okay, so that kind of brings us to you, Emily, and you know, in the wake of this verdict. What does this mean for our clients, for the you know Missouri public school districts? What do they need to be thinking about with respect to transgender students and their obligations, and more specifically with respect to accommodating them uh, on the uh, request to use the restrooms of the gender with which they identify? Well, if you've ever heard us discuss this before, I think you're going to hear some very similar refrains to what you've heard in terms of practical advice and impact. You know, we really do continue to recommend that districts not have a specific policy regarding students who are transgender. Like Drew said, the law is certainly becoming more settled at the state and federal level with each court decision. 
Um, but each student is different and each community is different in terms of requests and needs and community sentiment. And you already have board policies that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex or gender and sexual harassment. So based on the court's, uh, the jury's decision in this case, and the case law that we have so far, you know, the decisions are being derived from those very basic discrimination and harassment laws and policies. So an additional policy is really not necessary. But I think that the most important thing for school leaders to think about right now is just trying to figure out where the Board of Education is with respect to this issue. The board really needs to understand, um, and so does administration, the potential for litigation related to the issue if a student's requests for adjustments in the school environment aren't honored. What's the appetite for risk there, right? And then part of that is also checking with your insurer regarding coverage if the district really chooses to diverge from the established law that we have it for what it's worth that term um, at the moment. So, you know, those are certainly some things to think about. You know, you mentioned insurance and, and how that might fit into this equation, but I think that's a critical point when it comes to the verdict that was just rendered. And I would invite either one of you to kind of weigh in on this, but, you know, often uh, when you have compensatory damages, uh, a lot of times that's insured, you know, that's part of what's covered by insurance. Not always. There are some pieces that get carved out here or there, but, you know, we think of it as being largely insured. But then the punitive damages, which is obviously the lion's share of this particular verdict, in most instances, that's not going to be insurance money. That's going to be school district money. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think in most instances, I mean, some some districts in Missouri now have coverage for some level of punitive damages, but it may be $200,000. And which is unusual in, in even to have that amount, right? Absolutely. And so that's that's something that from a school district risk analysis, I mean, that's a scary piece is that they may be on the hook and have no no insurance coverage for, for the largest part of the verdict. So, and I interrupted you, Emily, because you were talking about risk assessment and explaining that to the board and kind of covering that ground. And they probably need to understand that, well, that's not just insurance money that's at risk. It's It's school money. It's money that we would otherwise use to pay teachers. That's money that we would use to for any number of purposes, right? Exactly. So, you know, that is a big part of the risk assessment. You know, we can't just say, well, we're insured for this kind of thing. So, you know, let's let's just take it all away unless the district really feels like that is you know, going to be something that is worth the, not just, I mean, not just the cost of a potential verdict and potential punitive damages, but also just, you know, there's the cost of litigation as well. And, you know, your insurer needs to, to probably weigh in on some level about whether there's going to be some reservation of rights or something like that. So uh, I think that's certainly an important consideration for a practical consideration versus a philosophical consideration. Good. Well, and uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, we don't really necessarily see a need to change policy because sex or gender discrimination is covered by your policies. But 
what other things in the wake of this verdict do you think um, school districts need to be thinking about? So I think that, you know, we have seen districts small and large and suburban, urban and rural have students come to them uh, with gender identity related requests. And I think that administrators need to be aware of the current state of the law and the sentiment of the board and have a plan in place for how to address requests that are made uh, by parents and students. And we need to deal with, even though, you know, we're saying don't have this policy, we need to deal with these requests in a uniform fashion. You know, who is in charge of that process when a request is made and what is our protocol for going through, you know, a meeting with the student and the parents and that sort of thing. So when we look at that actual process Uh, You know, one of the first things we need to do is, um, you know, if we have a transgender student who approaches the district about adjustments to their school environment, whether that's, you know, name change and pronoun change, restroom usage, et cetera, you know, one of our first questions is, is the student 18? If they are not an adult, then we really need to bring the parents in to be involved in those educational related decisions about their students. Note, I mean, of note, I think we are aware um, as we're giving that that preliminary guidance to bring the parents in that there may be safety reasons for some districts not to take this approach uh, at all or perhaps with each and every student who's under the age of 18. And so some districts have elected to sort of move forward with honoring a student's individual request without involving parents or guardians if they're aware that perhaps having that discussion with parents or guardians would would create a very stressful or unsafe home environment for the student. But that's, you know, whether to involve the parents, it's an individual district's choice, but it does present some risk. If parents later become aware of the adjustments that were made in the school environment, and then the parents or guardians weren't involved in those discussions related to their child. So you know, that's, that's kind of our first consideration. Is the student 18, how are we involving the parents in this process? And then, then we would want to consider the student and, and parents' specific requests in light of what the board and the district's position is regarding requests. So when we talk about those requests, what we commonly see are requests for name and pronoun changes, restroom usage requests, locker room usage requests, We've seen recently, and as was at issue in the RMA case, sex sex segregated classes or activities um, like choir or PE. Perhaps there may be some segregation related to health health classes at some point in a student's career. So, you know, we may be looking at those those sorts of requests and, and we need to suss out how we're dealing with those requests. And then sport. Participation is really guided by MISHA rules, which are derived from NCAA eligibility rules related to uh, an athlete's gender identity. And that's really not a district decision up to a certain point, unless the district wishes to be more restrictive than MISHA or the NCAA rules say. And so uh, that's that's we typically don't see a lot of sports related issues, but uh, the RMA case certainly alluded to those as well. So, so the district needs to be thinking about uh, all those sorts of things when thinking about what the position is going to be and what we would do in terms of dealing with requests. 
I want to get your guys' thoughts on this particular issue. And that is, in this instance, the plaintiff eliminated a lot of question mark, uh, gray, if you will, uh, by having their status change legally, if you will, from female to male. And I think that that made it a much cleaner case for them to present from the plaintiff's side. Do we think that that was uh, something that a school district should take into account and try to tell people that, okay, until you do that, we're not going to accommodate you or that we, you know, certainly it would be a trigger if somebody shows up and they have had that change. We know, okay, yeah, we, our risk just went up quite a bit, but absent that, you know, do we see, treat it the same as we would as if they had already changed legally their status? So what I would say is that what we know from federal guidance and uh, federal case law out there is that there isn't really a threshold for what is enough, quote unquote enough, uh, to say this is the point at which you can make these kinds of requests. And, and if you don't have a, you know, a legal name change, a legal birth certificate change, a doctor's note, or, you know, that kind of thing, we're not going to do this. So, um, but, you know, that is a question that we've had a number of clients ask. I do think that the RMA case was made stronger for the plaintiff because of the legal nature of the uh, former students name change and birth certificate sex change. But at the same time, you know, we need to be aware too, that a, a name change is really not that difficult to obtain from a legal perspective, changing a birth certificate. I don't, I truly don't know how difficult that is, but, but it may be something that a student wouldn't have access to until they reached a certain age. Drew, do you know that? by any chance? I don't. Okay. I just, um, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, if we have a kindergartner, sorry to put you on the spot, but you know, if we have a kindergartner who comes to us with their parents and, and is saying that their gender identity is not the same as their uh, biological sex, it may not even really be an opportunity for them to have that legal proceeding where their birth certificate is changed at that young of an age. And so I think that, you know, I don't know that the feds would be with us if we said that we were going to require that. Right. One, one, one thing that I would add there too, is that if you go back and look at that Supreme court decision, along with the jury instructions, I mean, it's not saying biological sex, it's not saying a threshold, right? Those instructions are, are pretty broad and open-ended in, in the, the statements of the court. So the majority opinion had several footnotes that went after the dissenting opinion and addressed those issues, you know, saying this is not sex stereotyping, this is sex discrimination, and none of these cases say that it has to be biological sex. So I just want to, I'm just concurring with Emily's uh, statement that we really don't have a threshold for this, but at the end of the day, those may be things that a jury considers if another case goes to litigation, but the instruction's not going to explicitly address that with them. And it's not something that's going to be decided soon by RMA going up on appeal either, because it's not an issue in that particular case. So we'll yeah. have to kind of wait and see what those, what, you know, what is a sufficient trigger, if you will. 
interesting questions uh, with respect to it. Emily, what else would you say that people need to be really kind of considering in the wake of this verdict last week? So I think that, you know, after we've processed a student's requests for adjustments in the school environment, uh, it makes sense to make an individual written plan for each student outlining what we've agreed to. The district and the student really need to stick with the plan. The district needs to notify the um, people in the school environment who need to know about a name or pronoun change. And, you know, we don't want If we agree to allow a student to use a different restroom, we don't want, you know, random staff members who may be in the hallway stopping someone from going in the restroom after we've agreed that that's okay. You know, that's just creates a scenario for some risk. And then, you know, I would say that if there are requests to change the plan, we need to have an additional meeting about that. Or if the student isn't following the plan, you know, then we need to call an additional meeting, you know, hey, what's not working out about this? Or, you know, we discussed that, you know, there may be certain scenarios where the student doesn't want to use a group restroom at all. They want to use an individual restroom. And then three weeks later, they start using a restroom that we haven't discussed or approved. And so, you know, we need to sit down and say, okay, what's changed? And, and, you know, we agreed to this plan and let's talk about why that's different now. And that way, you know, we have this written agreement, for lack of a better term, about how the school is adjusting and how the student is adjusting per our discussion. And so I think I think that's pretty important too. But you know, the most the most legally protective course of action in light of where the state case law and the federal case law and the federal guidance is at this point, you know, is going to be to honor students' requests that we're aware would be supported by existing case law and federal guidance. We understand that's not necessarily the direction that some boards or communities may be supportive of. But as, you know, we discussed earlier, that's really a conversation, a risk benefit and risk tolerance discussion that needs to be had with the board. And, you know, one question that we get a lot is, well, what if we have gender conforming students or their parents make a complaint regarding a transgender student's use of their preferred facilities? We have yet to see a successful claim based on that, that, you know, hey, my daughter doesn't want to use a restroom with a biological male. I don't think she should have to do that. How is that not sexual harassment? I'm not aware of any cases like that that have been filed in the state of Missouri. And even when we've had parents in districts who have threatened to do that, that has never come to fruition. But just be aware that that's a question that we see come up a lot from boards and administrators. And it's something that we've had parents call and make complaints about. So that's certainly something to consider as well, just in terms of managing the the public relations aspect of things. You know, I think for school leaders trying to balance all of these things, uh, particularly now when people are trying to throw school boards and school leaders into the middle of their culture wars, I think one of the, the difficult things is having this gray space in the law. And uh, one issue that comes up in this context that I find very difficult to kind of work through is when you have non-binary students, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Emily, and you know what schools face in that regard? Yes. Yeah, so um, we've had 
a number of situations where students come to the administration or a teacher or counselor and say, uh, I, you know, I don't identify as male or female or how I identify may change on a daily or weekly basis. And it just depends on how I feel when I wake up in the morning. And so schools have called and said, what are we supposed to do with that? You know, if we don't know what restroom they're going to be using, or if we don't know what locker room they're going to be using, how are we supposed to make that agreement that you advise us to make, you know? So I think that, you know, again, we're just talking about working through the individual requests, uh, just as we would for a student who solidly identifies as a specific gender. And I think that, you know, when we think about it from a practical perspective, when we talk about restroom use specifically, you know, if a student wants to use if, if we say, sure, you can use the restroom of the gender with which you identify, it really shouldn't be a problem for them to use either because they're either using the one of their biological sex or they're using a gender with which they identify. I think it gets much trickier when we're talking about a couple other things, sex segregated classes slash locker room usage, because I think that, you know, a locker room visit is more prolonged than a restroom visit. And uh, from a supervision perspective, I think that presents an issue. Where is the student at any given time? And uh, obviously with sex segregated classes, which present some of their own Title IX issues that we won't get into um, today because that's a whole right. other podcast. But, you know, if when we talk about sex segregated classes, you know, it, it, from a practical perspective, it probably doesn't make sense that the student would be able to float, so to speak, in between girls PE and boys PE or something like that. So, so that does get a little bit trickier. And I think we just have to sort of suss that out. And then I also think pronoun use and name preference is also confusing and difficult for fellow students and staff members, whenever we have a student who identifies as non-binary, uh, they may want to use the they, them pronoun, or they may say, I want today I'm a she and tomorrow I'm a he. I think that we have to set some realistic boundaries there with the student and say, you know, that is going to be very difficult for peers and for staff members. So can we pick something that can be used every day, like they, them, instead of having that change so that we are making sure that we aren't misgendering you on a given day. Um, so that would be one option. And then I think we can also say we have to have a solid name so that we know, you know, what we're calling you consistently throughout the, the school week, month, year, and, and set some boundaries there. I think that's reasonable. And I, and I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's going to be something that we get dinged on if we're trying to create some consistency in the school environment. With that said, I will say that we have had a number of complaints over the last year or two about school districts uh, having staff members who are misgendering students, either accidentally or on purpose. And so that's also something, you know, we whatever stance your district decides to take about how to accommodate for adjustments in the school environment for transgender students, then, you know, we need to make sure our staff are well-educated about that, about what the expectations are there. Good. You know, I, I, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up now, but I want to give each of you a chance to give us uh, what are your big takeaways here from the RMA verdict uh, last week? And what would you uh, just want to 
provide to our listeners as a parting shot. Drew, you want to kick us off? Sure. I, I think that, you know, I think it was a surprising verdict. Uh, and so it's one of those things from a risk assessment standpoint, you kind of go back and you think about, okay, well, these, these present more risk than, than you might assess going into it. You know, we've had, an, you know, unfortunately with school districts, we've dealt with, you know, sexual harassment cases, uh, you know, student on student issues, staff student issues. And this was a case that didn't have any of that. It was just, I mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like it was minimal, but we were talking about only facility usage and bathrooms and locker rooms, and it resulted in a verdict in excess of $4 million. And so I think the biggest takeaway for me is that when we're analyzing these situations and assessing the risk, and as a school leader, when you're assessing that risk and a school board looking at that, there's risk there. And it could come to the tune of $4 million. From school coffers. From school coffers. So. Emily, your thoughts? I think that our, I mean, this has gotten quite a bit of press already just in the last two and a half days. And so I think that school leaders need to be prepared for parents and students to know about this and to feel maybe more comfortable or emboldened to make requests for adjustments if they haven't made those already or if those have been denied. Or, you know, you may see, you may have a plan in place that's been working well for a student for who knows how long, and that student may no longer, or parents may no longer be pleased with that in light of this verdict. So just steal yourself for um, the potential for some email requests and phone calls and changes if you happen to have students who are transgender or non-binary in your school environment, or you may find out that you have students who fit that description that you didn't know about before. I think that's an excellent point. You know, with uh, the break, everybody getting ready for the break and coming back from the break, there may be some of those uh, parents and students that want to reset once they've learned of this verdict and and come in and make some of those requests mm-hmm. slash demands uh, of the district. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time and providing your valuable insights on this. Uh, more to come, I'm sure, on the on the issue, uh, but uh, we'll see where it goes. It is crystallizing in a particular way. It's leaning a particular way, I think, and so we're going to have to probably be prepared as school districts to address this issue sooner rather than later. So it's good to see each of you, and uh, thank you. And thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today. We hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and uh, subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues that just relate to the Missouri education community. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council. That's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together. Have an excellent holiday season. And thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.